On this episode of the Aka Education Podcast, Justin speaks with the darling music teacher, Darlene Machikan. Darlene discusses the importance and significance of culturally responsive teaching and social-emotional learning in the classroom. Darlene provides valuable information that is essential for all teachers. Let's get ready. It's time for some Aka Education. It's the Aka Education Podcast. Hey everybody, it's Justin Glodish here with episode 31 of the Aka Education Podcast. And this week, I'm taking a different approach. We're not necessarily focusing on acapella this week, but we're focusing on education culturally responsive education, social emotional learning. And this week I have with me Darlene Machacon, who is a Filipina American music educator in California. She teaches elementary music education and focuses most of her teaching on breaking those norms that we've essentially been taught since we were younger. Darlene, welcome to the Aka Education Podcast. Thanks for having me, Justin. I'm super excited to be here and chat with you on all the things. <laughs> Uh, All the things. Absolutely. And you are also actually the co-host of a podcast called Coloring the Melody. Um, And I've listened to a few episodes and there's some great content on there. And if you haven't checked it out, folks, you need to. So I want to talk about the importance of social emotional learning, especially in a year where we're in a very difficult situation between different learning styles, teaching methods, teaching styles within the classroom setting. I mean, you and I were having a discussion earlier about this and how our our district's definition of hybrid are two completely different things. So there's that going on, making sure that our students' well-being is important, making sure our mental health and our well-being is, is, is being paid attention to as well. So could you discuss your approach on social emotional learning with your elementary school students in the classroom? Yeah, we can talk about um, SEL. That's what the people have been saying. Um, That's the new buzzword, Yeah, the new right? buzzword. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and it's been buzzing a lot for sure, especially with the pandemic. Um, I mean, like, I'd also like to start off by saying that for me personally, I tried to move beyond seeing any trending thing as a buzzword um, because mm-hmm. there's a reason why it's buzzing. You know, it's like, oh, right. we, we actually should be caring for students during this pandemic. But then it makes me think, so were we not? <laughs> like, right. That gives the impression, so we weren't? So that that's like the other take I'm thinking of. Um, and CASEL, which is the Collaborative of Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning, they actually had to update their definition of SEL. And so they have an updated one. Um, as of December 2020. So for any of our listeners who are, I guess, unfamiliar with it, and I'll just read the definition so they don't have to search for it themselves. I'll just make the job easy for everyone. So yeah, um, the updated definition is, um, SEL is an integral part of education and human development. And SEL is the process through which all young people and adults acquire and apply the knowledge, skills, and attitudes to develop healthy identities manage emotions and achieve personal and collective goals, feel and show empathy for others, establish and maintain supportive relationships, and make responsible and caring decisions. 
and I believe they also added on added this on. Um, it advances educational equity and excellence through authentic school family community partnerships to establish learning environments and experiences that feature trusting and collaborative relationships, rigorous and meaningful curriculum and instruction, and ongoing relationships. And then it also addresses various forms of inequity and empowers young people and adults to co-create thriving schools and contribute to safe, healthy, and just communities. So it covers a lot of things and it almost sounds a little flowery <laughs> at first <laughs> and it can be very overwhelming. But I guess at the bottom of it all, it's just caring for students more than as data, more than as a number, more than as, oh, this person's going to show up. I totally hope they can sing on pitch kind of kid, you know? It's really right. seeing them as a human. And I think also just with anything in education that is trending, it's just to always critique it and criticize, okay, so this whole system, this whole social emotional learning, like who, who is this really made for? And when before this new definition came out and, um, and when I was studying a little bit more um, on the process and the different components of identifying emotions and building relationships, I immediately looked at it and thought, this will not work with every kid from every culture and, and every identity. Because then this also ties into um, culturally responsive teaching. And so, mm -hmm. um, because when I was looking at it, I remember looking at some of the different strategies implemented and I'm thinking, well, me as a Filipino American woman who grew up in a very different culture, some of these would kind of hit a little bit differently. Um, mm -hmm. And I remember writing about this um, actually with Dr. Scott and Edgar, who is the author of um, social and emotional learning in um, music education or something like that. I think I flipped it, <laughs> but he is uh, mm -hmm. the big, uh, the big person for, for pushing the CL in music. Um, I even like talked to him and said, Hey, um, if, if we're going to talk about emotions, we have to be mindful of how not every culture will see looking into their emotions this way. Not everybody is comfortable you know, looking at, okay, how am I feeling? Because then I, well, I look at also, individualist versus collectivist cultures. And so individualist cultures lean more towards making decisions on the self versus collectivist cultures um, lean more towards making decisions based on the group. So for example, mm -hmm. and this is not stereotyping you know, anybody, but just in general, more collective, collectivist cultures will like, we'll say, they'll think, oh, I'm experiencing emotion. Okay, I am going to make a decision on this emotion based on how it's going to affect everybody. Um, right. Yeah, which is actually different from how individualist cultures see that. And there is a study um, kind of ranking um, all the diff all these different countries based on the level of individualism versus collectivism. And the United States was like 100 points, while like the Philippines, where, where I'm from, was more like in the 20s. So there, there were... Mm -hmm some shades of individualism, which I think is partly due to um, European colonization. But I mean, we're mainly, you know, a collectivist culture because we are located in um, Asia. So I think that, I mean, I'm just like throwing all these different things, but it just goes to show that when we see these different buzzwords, we have to be critical on how it can be very multifaceted and that we should mm -hmm. um, welcome all these different perspectives in it. Yeah. Absolutely. And you mentioned, um, this idea of, um, you know, uh, culturally responsive teaching and, you know, there another buzzword that's out there right now, mm -hmm. 
which shouldn't be because it's anti-racism and the ability to to be an anti-racist. Um, there's been the Black Lives Matter movement and a lot of people don't realize it, but in the news right now, there's actually like a lot of things going on in um, the Asian um, Asian community as well. A lot of attacks on um, older Asian Americans for, for no particular reason, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's not getting as much media attention as this other this other movement but it all falls under the same thing it's it's all racism Mm -hmm. and it's all you know attacking people of different cultures um but in terms of being anti-racist how do you approach something like that um especially with your elementary school students um how do you teach them to be just good human beings um overall um as you go through your day Mm -hmm. Well, I guess we can start by first defining what culturally responsive teaching is. And so, I mean, Mm -hmm. I like how Dr. Uh, Constance McCoy defines it as just saying it's seeing how culture affects the way we learn. And so I think it's also important to point out that everybody has a culture. Like there's this whole joke that saying that white people don't have a culture, but culture is literally like just, you know, the way you live, you know, the different Mm -hmm. norms that you have. it's also, I think, essential how sometimes our educational systems or even just the way we were brought up musically may perhaps conforms or leans more towards a specific culture, maybe more of the individualist mm-hmm. culture. And of course, when you're teaching um, in a way that is suited more for a dominant culture to students who are not of that, that's when the culture clash happens. And that's when, you know, mm-hmm. teachers will go, oh, my lesson's not working. The kids aren't into it. Uh, classroom management, what am I going to do? So the teachers start asking these things of, oh, my gosh, like, I need to work on my classroom management skills. Or, oh, my gosh, these kids are, and like, and when really, what if it's just what we're teaching them? It's not about how we're mm-hmm. managing. What if it's just what we're teaching them? It's just not relating to them. And and the strategies we use behind that. So in regards to being more anti-racist, I don't want to call myself as, oh, I am the anti-racist professional. Everyone consult me. My fee is $1,000 an hour. No, like, (laughs) (laughs) but like, I don't want to call myself that because becoming more anti-racist is just a journey. Like there's no certificate at after you read three books, one being How to Be anti right. More Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. There's no, like, I don't want to say there's no light at the end of the tunnel, but no one's going to give you a trophy saying, congratulations, you did it. Good for you. Right. Because it's it's a lot of unlearning and relearning what we've been doing. And it's interesting because the more I learn on how to become more anti-racist, the more I realize, oh, my gosh, there's so much more for me to learn. And then I mm. also see how... Um, it intersects with my identity as an Asian American too. And as I also read different resources on what this work looks like, I also think, okay, but my experiences as an Asian American are also different from somebody who is black in the United States. Well, yes, you know, we have encountered racism and discrimination. It's still, mm-hmm. there's still different nuances in that. So right. I've been also kind of interrogating that and, um, reflecting on what that specifically looks like um, for me. Um, and you've mm-hmm. also mentioned, yeah, recently with all the anti-Asian um, hate that's been happening. And it's actually pretty sad how we as in, we as in a, um, the Asian American community had to fight to make sure it was in the media. So mm-hmm. because when um, the, the injustice and the murder of George Floyd happened, that was on the news right away as it should be. Mm -hmm. It should be in the news. Um, 
But then Angelo Quinto, a Filipino-American man, um, well, his, well, the story was, he, and I'm going to you know, tell more about the story because it's really not in the news as much as it should be. Mm-hmm. So what had happened was he was just going through a mental breakdown. Sister wanted to call the cops for help, for support. That was it. And then mm-hmm. cops came in, put a knee to the neck, gone in five minutes. December 23, that's what happened. I didn't find out till last week. That's like ridiculous. Like that it hasn't been approached in any way, shape or form in the media. Yeah. yeah. And to think that it was a Filipino American. He was from the San Francisco mm-hmm. Bay Area, which I'm from. And it was also really sad when I posted about it. And I had a, my childhood friend message me and said, oh, that used to be my coworker. So she found out through my post. And so I think it's important to talk about these things, even though I know they're, you know, they're very sensitive topics, but because we have people in our communities who are affected by this. And mm-hmm. if we are to be teachers, we can't just say, oh, I don't see your, your race. I don't see your color. Like, I'm not gonna acknowledge your background. That's basically saying to students of color, Oh, I don't see mm-hmm. you for who you are. I'm just going to dim- dismiss that entirely. Um, I just see you as a person. Um, right. So I think, yeah, I think for anyone who, who has been thinking, oh, no, I just focus on the music. Because, you know, just go focus on good music. That's all I do. Then we, I just want us to interrogate that and how when we think that way, we could be potentially hurting, be potentially hurting more students with that way of thinking. Right. And, you know, you brought up the, the idea of all this being sensitive, sensitive subjects, sensitive subject matter. And I think like as a nation, we've all become comfortable. You know, there's the idea of being comfortable with what, what we're used to, the things we're set in. And when new things that make us feel uncomfortable come into play, we're not sure how to approach them. So the easiest thing for, for a majority of people, I think, is to just do exactly what you said not focus on it or, or just, you know, keep doing what you're doing instead of, you know, asking the hard questions or you know, looking up the information or, you know, becoming more familiar with these things. There is that sense of just being comfortable and being okay with, you know, what's going on because you're afraid to attack it or afraid to approach it. Yeah. Uh-huh. I think that's, that's something I've seen a lot. Um, the mm-hmm. reason why maybe some people have been hesitant to do this work is because they're they're comfortable where they're at but people when we people can choose to be comfortable but mm-hmm. people who are facing you know these injustices we can't choose to get out of them you know um, and then right. you also mentioned like how do I you know how does this translate to the classroom I'm I think when teachers think oh my gosh that's gonna be like I'm gonna have to do some like wild lessons it doesn't have to be as as um, dramatic as it should sound, it really just starts with looking at the people we feature in our materials, um, mm-hmm. looking at whose voice is being told in our curriculum, um, right. and seeing like, okay, do students even have a say in w- what they want to learn? Um, because oftentimes, sometimes education is okay the teacher knows best teacher knows everything the teacher is the professional musician and follow them because they're the conductor they know all um but then we sometimes forget that students already come in with their specific musical identities 
and their mm -hmm. their ethnic identities and their racial identities and there is so much knowledge to that so it's also shifting our perspective into thinking that students are not deficits you know like oh mm -hmm. you're coming you're a new student okay like for example um in the past i mean i admit that i used to think and teach in that more in that realm of Oh, these students don't know anything. I am here to teach them all the things. And I would have instances where, um, at least in my elementary school, it would go up till sixth grade and we would have mm -hmm. transfer students, sixth graders who would come in who have had no music background whatsoever. But then all the other kids would be drilling on their note names on the treble clef and then they would be knowing their rhythms and things like that. And this new kid comes in going, oh my gosh, what do I do? And then I had right. to like think and go, oh my gosh, to have this person come in and already automatically feel like they're not good enough um, just because they don't know the material there. And if let's say that was all I focus on, oh, no way was that sixth grade transfer student going to ever feel welcome. So it's also right. thinking, okay, what is the emphasis of my curriculum? Is it just drilling content drilling standards or am I having opportunities where students see themselves in the material? Like, am I Am I talking about different artists and musicians that look like my kids? And also leaving space for discussion on maybe how some of these artists, especially people of color, who overcame different, um, different um, injustices and how they're also breaking stereotypes and different things like that. So it's not something we always hear about in your typical classical music conservatory. Um, yes, and, yes. Yeah, and, that's, and that's totally okay. It's totally okay that we haven't learned all that we want to learn because that just paves the way that there is more for us to learn as we embark in being an educator. Mm -hmm. And you, you mentioned it right there, you know, the things that we learned uh, in our own education um, to become teachers, you know, a lot of focus was on, you know, Western music, you know, the European, the European influences and, and, and cultures that, you know, led to, you know, we always talk about Bach and Beethoven mm -hmm. and Mozart. And I, I know that when I was in elementary school, like those were the composers that we focused on, mm -hmm. you know, um, and we played orf instruments and, mm -hmm. and, and things like that, but we didn't really go into a lot of the, um, I mean, we sing folk songs, but, you know, there's a lot of talk now about a lot of the songs that we may have learned as mm -hmm. younger students. There's a lot of negative connotations yeah. with those songs. So, and, and in, for me, you know, I teach middle school. So my general music kids, my seventh grade students, um, it's, it's a very eclectic mix of students um, in terms of, you know, even just their backgrounds. I have a lot of new students this year that have, you know, come up from New York City because, you know, New York City didn't have students in their um, classrooms and mm. their parents wanted them to have, you know, in-person like contact with with teachers. So I have new students, you know, coming in who might not have gotten the same uh, information, like you said, and it's really just trying to communicate with them on on their level and yeah. really kind of find what they're comfortable with and then building off of that you know i mean the music curriculum really can become whatever you want it to be mm -hmm. you can teach the general concepts that need to be taught but also relate it to the things that your students care about and your students you know like will enjoy it's it's like it's latching them and bringing them into the conversation by relating it to what they enjoy mm -hmm. um now i wanted to ask you just about we like the european influences and um 
what are some resources that you would use within the classroom setting to teach a lot of different um, cultural, um, like cultural songs? I know that this, uh, we just uh, got through uh, Black History Month in February. Um, you know, there was the Lunar New Year. So there's a lot of things that, you know, teachers have kind of approached in that sense. Um, but I'm curious as to what are some other things that um, you have used uh, within your classroom to teach a variety of different cultures? Well, for me, I always have to prioritize culture bearers. So if I'm going to teach a song from, let's say, the Philippines, I'm going to find a resource that was created by someone of that culture. If I'm going mm -hmm. to, um, yeah, find something from Teachers Pay Teachers, TBT, I'm going to challenge and go, okay, is the person... Does a person who um, created this, how does how is this person qualified to represent this culture? Um, because right. there, there is a difference between appreciating and uplifting a culture versus appropriating and exoticizing it. Like, for example, um, I was trying to look for Lunar New Year resources specifically for a Vietnamese population because I teach a um, and the heart of little Saigon, so I have a lot of Vietnamese students. So I go on, or I go, TPT. I just, I actually typed in Vietnamese Lunar New Year, and everything that popped up was Chinese New Year, Chinese New Year, Chinese New Year. Not even Chinese Lunar New Year, just Chinese New Year. Um, and that has been disheartening because then it, it shows that, oh, well, I guess only Lunar New Year is only celebrated in, in one country. And then I also looked at the people who created it, and I'm going, these aren't culture bearers. And I personally don't feel comfortable putting money into a resource that, you know, was kind of just like put randomly put together um, versus putting my money into somebody who's from that culture. So that's, I think, a perspective to prioritize rather than thinking, oh, what are some websites or what are some... Um, teacher authors like no like who are the people and because the important question to ask is whose voice is being told behind our resources behind the songs we teach um, and what was their intention behind that and how authentic is it too so I've right. even looked not even beyond music education resources I've looked at um, the conscious kid um, it's an, a nonprofit on Instagram. They have a lot of resources, especially on children's literature. Um, and if you're also interested in doing more of a social justice approach, um, learning for justice, um, they used to be called te teaching tolerance, but they, they've uh, shifted their um, shifted their name. So I've been looking at that, and then also in regards to social emotional learning, um, Dina Simmons, who used to work for the um, for the Yale Center of Emotional Intelligence. Um, she started her own um, SEL program called Liberated SEL, which is SEL through this racial and equity lens towards um, liberation. So it's not just, oh, we're going to look at um, SEL through an equity lens. It's about liberation, I think. And I also want to take a little bit of time to define that because I sometimes feel like people just go equity, diversity, and inclusion, just throwing all those words there without really buzzwords. Um, yeah, buzzwords. It's... Yeah, it's just buzzing. <laughs> and then you sound like, oh, you're super on trend. It's like, but do you really know what that, what that means? And I right. and I also have to keep pausing, going, Darlene, what does that really mean? And what does that really look like? Mm -hmm. So, so equity is, I also, I'm also a very visual person. Like I'm also going to base my description based on this image. So let's say there are three different people, all different heights, and there's this wall and they're trying to see, I don't know, 
like someone playing baseball or someone playing basketball, whatever. Um, and equity mm-hmm. is achieved when you give people what they need. So maybe the super tall person doesn't need it because they can already see over the wall versus mm-hmm. these two other people. One may be of medium height, so maybe he needs like a little bit of a boost versus maybe the cute little shorty needs like three feet, <laughs> right? So right. it's not equality because if you if you think of equality, that's giving everyone an equal amount, but that doesn't help because maybe the shorty may not be able to see um, and then the, the super tallie will, won't need that. Equity is... You know, finding, okay, maybe this people group needs more of this support, while this maybe not so much. So that way everybody can see over this wall. But liberation Mm -hmm. is when that wall is completely gone. Right. Yeah. And I think it's time for us to, for us educators to not think, okay, what can I do to help? But it's like moving towards dismantling systems and dismantling, you know, whatever is in the way, whatever we do have power um, in, in our teaching practice to to move, yeah, just beyond what equity is. Um, so I try to also learn, lean into more of those more general education resources. And I also look at stuff um, put out by Decolonizing the Music Room, awesome nonprofit mm-hmm. there. Um, if we're, you're really into like academia and research, there's this group called the Mayday Group, where they have a lot of work on really interrogating um teaching philosophies and things like that. And also prioritizing following, um, you know, different Instagram accounts that are, who are of black, brown, indigenous, and um, Asian um, communities there. And because that all goes back to my point of culture bearers, seeing whose voice is being told there. So yeah, that's, those are usually the Reese's, uh, Reese, Reese's, <laughs> definitely think of candy right now. <laughs> those are definitely the resources I've been turning to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you brought up, we've uh, asked you this question, like I usually send out a questionnaire before, uh, usually before we all meet and have our discussion. Um, and you have made mention previously how you, you get those questions based on your personal experience. Where are you from? Like, and it, like how you, how you would take that. I mean, and sometimes we don't really think about the words that we say as human beings, not just as educators, but as human beings, we don't realize that sometimes the things that we say um, don't make sense or are or, or not, you know, strong. And, and you talk about culture, culture bearers, like these, like the people who create this curriculum or create these lessons have experience within that culture. And I, I think that's valuable. I think it's important. And all these are like, I have, I have lists. I'm, I'm, I, oh, you can't see it because I have because a of the virtual background. But I'm literally <laughs> the virtual background, but I'm literally no it's one can see good. it anyway because this is it. it's an audio podcast. You so, know, right? but I am writing lots of things down. <laughs> um, but you know, you talked about how educators should look at the voice of their curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the true voice of the repertoire that they select, especially for you know choral teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe even band teachers as well, you know, granted there's no um, vocal, but maybe looking at the composers themselves and just the history behind some of those composers um, and just knowing our privilege and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how can we be mindful? Because I'm not going to lie. I've, you know, I forget sometimes um, that I need to, you know, I need to approach what I say, you know, from a wider lens sometimes. Um, and I'm, I'm not afraid to admit that, but how can we be mindful of those things when we're approaching 
music of a variety of, of different cultures within our classroom mm-hmm. to not to not feel like we're doing it wrong. I think that's one of the big things that I would be afraid of mm-hmm. is not teaching it appropriately. Yeah. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Total sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's understanding that, especially if you're not from that culture, um, mm-hmm. that you don't may not know everything and bring in somebody who's from that culture. Let's say you're teaching a song in Spanish and uh, one of your kids knows Spanish. Have them teach Spanish to the rest of the class. I remember mm-hmm. um, a choir director friend of mine wanted to teach a song in Tagalog, which is um, the main language in the Philippines. And mm-hmm. she asked me to help with the language. And for me, that felt very powerful, too, because another part of my identity is even though I am Filipino-American, I'm not fluent, but I can mm-hmm. still kind of work my way towards the language and pronounce words and things like that. Like, my, like people can talk to me in Tagalog, but then I'll respond back in English because I've, I'm like, I don't know how to put all the words together. But I'm able to get you know, where uh, the different diction should be and things like that. But to me, when she asked me, I thought, this is how it should be done. Um, But Mm -hmm. then I've also seen instances where it wasn't. I've seen people perform Filipino repertoire and then looking into, okay, did they ask someone from culture to teach them? Maybe not. And -hmm. also looking beyond just making sure you're, you're pronouncing it right. But it's like, how are we understanding more of the more of the message behind this story like what what yeah what are what is the history behind this um and what is their yeah their specific culture behind this song and and also making sure that we also don't pick music that just seems stereotypical like oh everybody we're going to choose a song from china and it's called um the pagoda like okay here we go another one it's like another one with a pentatonic scale so when we are programming this music is making sure that when we're um when we are picking from different cultures we're not just picking those quote-unquote stereotypical sounds because even though it may Mm -hmm. seem it may, may seem like we have the right intention it's continuing that stereotype of oh all these cultures perform music in this way. And that's maybe even like break, maybe finding ways of fusion, like thinking, okay, what if we found maybe more like we learn music, uh, let's say like rock and roll from Vietnam or something, or like <laughs> hip hop from, from Portugal. So rather than thinking, oh, we're going to learn music from different cultures, but it's like this far away, oh, music that's in, really traditional so then that's the thing that's that's the thing i've also been challenging too is not seeing world music as oh just traditional music traditional instrument that you can't see in an orchestra but they're still here they're still making music too same thing with mm-hmm. let's say native americans um they're still here too there's so much music being created by um native all these different tribes while they're while mm-hmm. they're also still making sure that their culture and their music is being kept alive. And so that's also part of being anti-racist is uplifting um, people in the BBI communities and letting students know that these people are still here and we are not going to stereotype that they are humans just like you, but we should still be aware of the, the systems that are oppressive so when we said see that happening uh, in a different situation our students feel empowered to call that out 
Um, right. Yeah. And I know that some teachers will think, oh, my gosh, that's not related to music. Oh, my gosh. Well, for me, I would much rather have my students feel empowered to call out racism, to call out when things are not right, rather than knowing the difference between a quarter note and an eighth note. So it's all about bigger picture priorities. Right. And you mentioned the idea of stereotypical music. And I feel like a lot of the stuff that you might see through, um, I'll, I'll, I'll say, you know, catalog websites where you can go order your music and whatnot. And you listen to the recordings of some of these, um, I, and really they are stereotypical, you know, here is a, uh, traditional, you know, Hanukkah song or, you know, a traditional, um, you know, uh, Chinese folk mm-hmm. song, traditional or, African or song like without that. saying yeah, what country I, it's from. Right. Mm-hmm. But then it's in, it's, it's in English. And the only thing about it is, is the, the drum. There's a, there's like, <laughs> Cringe. you know, and so yeah, it's, it's, it's those things that I, I've, I've in my, you know, I'm over 10 years of teaching now and I've noticed those things when choosing repertoire, it's like, this doesn't really represent what it wants to represent. It's almost like those, the way that those are approached by the songwriters and arrangers that arrange those pieces is more for the novelty to say, Hey, I can check this off my list of repertoire that, you know, Hey, we performed a, an African song this year that wasn't necessarily African, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, or when they turn them into partner songs (laughs) with like, like you don't you don't need a partner song with and like they don't really line up or they make up their own song to go with mm-hmm. it's, they it's like very transform confusing. it and another thing to point out is because we're talking about arrangers is who's getting right. compensated for this not the people right. from that culture definitely the exactly. person who meshed it up into some weird concoction and just calling mm-hmm. it a oh um african this african that but then when we teach that to our kids we're just continuing this cycle of mm-hmm. students thinking, oh yeah, of course this is an African tune because because it has this, and that's not helping students right. either. Right, and one of the things that um, I've I've grown to love over the years, I'm like obviously I'm a big acapella nerd. I have a podcast on it, but um, you know, uh, watching groups like Sweet Honey in the Rock and watching groups like Ladysmith Black Mombazo, where their arrangers are within the group and their arrangers sell their their own music themselves don't rely on someone else to arrange it or anything like that um that i think that's key is going straight to the source instead of you know the the arrangers that are are stockpiling different you know songs and it's really for them it's it's a way to make money again Mm -hmm. and and it's and that's that's against the whole idea of what you're trying to, to put out there. Yeah. So, and in the um, line of like authenticity is knowing that mm-hmm. also not all cultures songs were taught through Western notation. And so, right. yeah, if you we find a song and, and there's no music for it or my, my no, by no music, I mean, no Western notated <laughs> music um, or like the tradition to teach it is through rote, then we better teach it through rote. Because if we're going to be mm-hmm. authentic, then no, don't print off 62 copies of that music. Maybe use it for yourself if we forget. But if we're going to be authentic, we're also going to be authentic in the way we transmit it too. Because yeah, oral teaching um, through rote is really huge in a lot of cultures too. And there's definite value in that because, you know, we're also working on ear training and challenging students to 
not be so reliant on what they see, but also what they hear. Right. I think, I think it's important for them to like, because again, we've talked about this throughout. And I think as educators, it's important to realize that we're trying to make the students more well-rounded, not just musically, but just as individuals, as people, especially um, with you teaching elementary school, myself teaching middle school, um, even high school teachers and even college professors, you, you have, when you signed up for the profession, you basically are taking the responsibility to help those students grow and and become well-rounded and not not necessarily just focus on music but just focus on making sure that they're they're good human beings in general because i mean in reality you see them 35 40 hours a week you know it's it's like you're their manager and they're working like a full-time job you know so you want to make sure that you have some sort of influence on them so that when they leave you they are better off than when they first came to you so I think that's important. Um, and, and, you know, and talking about students, this is going to, this is a really weird segue, but it's okay. Let's just do um, it. You know, so students um, in general, you know, are, are, they love social media. They love using social media. And that's actually how I found you was uh, through the amazing TikTok, oh, you know. so and, kind. I'm flattered. Uh, so, um, but you know, for me, like I was actually, I had students, you know, when TikTok first started becoming big, you know, in the middle school setting, they were like, Miss Glodish, do, do you have a TikTok? Um, no, not yet. That's, that's weird. And then <laughs> as I started watching it, I realized that what the, the, um, perception of, of what I thought TikTok was, was silly because what I saw my students doing silly dances, mm-hmm. you know, shortened dances. And, um, but then, you know, my acapella group that I have, they started singing this really beautiful mm. tune that they learned on TikTok. It's like, where did you learn that? That sounds really good. And, you know, these are seventh and eighth graders doing like three, four part harmony. I was like blown away. And they're like, oh, it's on TikTok, Mr. Glow. You should totally check it out. <laughs> And then I, I secretly did. And then secretly, I, I've secretly <laughs> not, did. Not and now I'm on there, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's not a secret anymore, but I've, I've found that it's really not just the dances and, mm-hmm. and the things like that. There's, there's a great community of teachers out there. Yeah. There's a, just you, it's a valuable tool. The only thing I don't like about it is that you only get those minute snippets oh, of, of videos. You can't, you can't go further. So how, because you have a very strong following on there, um, how have you used social media to your advantage as an educator? I like I like how you say strong following because my definition of strong following is like three million. But okay. <laughs> but I well I th- I think for for educators you know because again I'm not I'm not a 15 16 year old kid who who dances on the daily and you know and now has drinks named after him or yeah, her no. at dunkin donuts <laughs> not referring you know to anybody I mean? else in particular no 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 one in particular <laughs> but you know i just you know i've i've grown to see that you know like a lot of the teachers that i'm starting to follow there's like a huge a huge group of people who are utilizing each other as resources. Mm-hmm. It's almost like TikTok has become professional, professional development, development for some yeah. <laughs> because they're getting it straight from the source. They're not necessarily getting it from a paid consultant who's coming in to talk to you for two hours, who mm-hmm. maybe has been in the classroom for about five years before they became said consultant. Yeah. You're talking to people who are living that daily life, teaching those things. And it's, um, I think it's a valuable resources. So uh, yes, maybe not 3 million, but I think strong, <laughs> 
I, I still think, especially with the with the topics and and the things that you discuss within your TikTok, I think it's I think it's used very well. Um, and again, for you, it, it leads to other other things. You know, mm-hmm. now you know, people will be um, you're on this podcast. Yeah. I've gone to your website, you know, and I, I've read up on you know some of the things that you have published as well, and it, it's using it to your advantage. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, how have you? other than, you know, just TikTok, how have you really used social media to your advantage? And what are some tips that you have for other educators to, you know, search and find uh, different things, not just necessarily the things that we've discussed Mm -hmm. today, but just in general for education? Yeah. Yeah. I totally get what you mean by it. Yeah. Instagram, TikTok, social media can be a way to get professional development, get resources, get ideas. Like a lot of my um, Google Slides hacks and all these little like (laughs) random like Chrome extension things, I didn't find them from a PD that my district paid for. They were all from just scrolling through TikTok. So there's definitely value in, you know, following different teachers because you learn from each other. Um, Mm -hmm. And every, everyone, teachers, kids, whatever, everyone has their specific niche, 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 right? And then any social media consultant will say this, like on social media, you got to be authentic. And for me, my niche isn't just saying surface level blanket statements or like promoting a product that I have, like, hey, everybody, check out my new like resource here. Or like, hey, everybody, teachers are tired, support teachers. Like, of course, like those are valid statements. And if you need to promote yourself, go for it. But for me as a person, Mm -hmm. that's not my level of authenticity. Um, And for Mm -hmm. me, being authentic is asking the hard questions, is challenging norms um, and asking questions that lead to action or even leading to, okay, so how? Um, so like what I do with my TikToks is because, you know, we're very limited <laughs> with, um, right. especially with like the captions and the comments, like I'll re-upload them on Instagram Reels because mm-hmm. then what I'll do is I have so much space in the caption and I'll even do like a, like a whole follow-up, like a whole paragraph on what this really means and things like that. And I've also seen power in communicating that same TikTok on a different um, on a different platform because I was able to even expand on that. Um, but yeah, there is a lot of power with social media like those two because due to the nature of, you know, using hashtags and using the FYP and also the fact that you can even reshare that too. That's why I find mm-hmm. is, is so easy is you see something you like and you know you find it in your settings and you can copy the link and te- to text it to a friend or share it to another teacher on that same app. Um, and I think what another part of social media is also being authentic with your audience and engaging with them because it's one thing mm-hmm. to have all these like resources out there, have all these statements, but they're not really going to be willing to listen to you if you're not going to be taking the time to get to know them on their platform. So it's in a way a relationship too. And that's all part of authenticity that shows that you are a real person behind the video or behind the picture. You're not just posting and ghosting, right? You're posting and then going, okay, but how, how are all these other people doing? Um, And so I've personally um, grown a lot from, from getting, not from growing my followers or anything like, but from just, learning from the people I got to meet there. I've even made some valuable friendships just from people I've met on the platform. Um, And so, yeah, like for anyone who's hesitant about social media, don't be scared of it. (laughs) 
<laughs> but also just find what your level of authenticity is and you'll you'll definitely find teachers who are going to be riding that wave with you. <laughs> yeah, and I think one of the things that I think is great about TikTok is that, you know, there's a like a specific algorithm that really tries to cater to the things that you like, Correct. the things that you, you know, the people that you follow. So rather than another website like say Facebook where <laughs> it's just I don't even like know what's happening. <laughs> My Facebook I just, feed. yeah, I, 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 I try, I check it less and less, uh, every day. Um, but with TikTok, you know, it really can be catered to you and it can, um, you know, if you follow specific people, there's an option to just see the videos that those people are posting as opposed mm -hmm. to the general, um, FYP and whatnot. And I think that's, that's a valuable resource and a valuable tool. And one of the things that I love that you just said is, is being authentic with yourself. And I think, you know, ever since social media became a thing, you know, like I'm going to date myself here and say, you know, back in the day, uh, Facebook, you actually had to email Mark Zuckerberg to ask if Ooh, your college can become a part of Facebook. Throwback. That's I mean. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was, I mean, I was a junior in college when Facebook happened I, and then like MySpace, you know, Ooh, back my in, you know Oh, I had a MySpace. <laughs> yeah. Same. I had like the top eight and everything. Oh, and, um, <laughs> There's a lot of pressure about that top eight. You know, that, uh, yeah. That, that was like, that was either that boosted your self-esteem or that really tore you down oh, if yeah. you weren't on someone's top mm -hmm. eight, you know, but, um, like things like that. I'm, I promise I'm going somewhere with this. Um, <laughs> now I just need to remember what it was. Um, but I, I think that being true to yourself and being authentic in your, your videos is important because social media has really become this thing that people become fake versions of themselves. Yeah. They, they only show like, uh, I don't know if you're a fan of John Mayer or not, but there's this great little thing that he talks about in one of his um, concert DVDs where he talks about when you go on a date, um, you, you give all your best movies right away. Mm -hmm. You know, you're given like, you know, the best o Oscar, you know, and then at some point it becomes, he says, weekend at Bernie's too. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just, <laughs> why did they even make it? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's it just, um, so you're creating this persona of yourself, but that may not be who you are really inside, mm -hmm. you know, and there are those people who, who post about, like you can see, you know, how happy they look in their videos, but then you read the news later on and it turns out maybe they're really not. Yeah. So being true to yourself and being authentic is, is huge, not just, um, you know, for the people out there watching, but also for yourself because you almost create this duality within yourself of, you know, who am I really? Am I this person that people want to see me be or am I going to be myself? Mm -hmm. And, you know, not just for us, but for our students as well, because you want them to be the best versions of themselves mm -hmm. that they can be. And you got to be aware of, you know, what's going on. Yeah. It's a long winded rant, <laughs> but I think being authentic to yourself is, is, is basically what I'm, I'm trying to get mm -hmm. at, which you had said. So um, I do have a lot of information that I am going to be sharing on our episode description link. Um, and you actually have a couple of things published, which you, can be accessed through your website, yes. um, which I'm also going to post. And you actually have um, an introductory chapter on SEL, social emotional learning. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll make sure that gets sent out to everybody as well. So um, Darlene Machacon, yeah. thank you so much. I think I got it right that time. Yes, I know that. Uh, <laughs> I I know I'm going to go back and edit it. That's fine. So, um, no worries. <laughs> Darlene Machacon, thank you so much for joining me this week on the Aka Education Podcast. It was very informative, and I hope everybody listening um, gained more knowledge 
from listening to this podcast and listen to it more than once. You know, if you missed something, go back and listen to it again and just keep listening to it because there's a lot of important information here. So Darlene, once again, thank you so much for joining me on the Act Education Podcast this week. Thanks, Justin, for having me. Absolutely. We will be right back. Hey, everyone, this is Justin from the Aka Education Podcast here to tell you about Anchor. Anchor is what I use to create these podcasts. And let me tell you, it's free. Uh, There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And the beauty of it is we'll distribute the podcast for you. So I can record on Anchor and it's going to send it to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all these other places as well. And I love that I can make money from this podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So be sure to download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I truly feel that this week's episode was very important to us as educators, especially with talking about cultural responsive teaching and social emotional learning in the classroom. So thanks once again to Darlene Machacon for joining me this week on the Aka Education Podcast. Be sure to check out the links in the episode description for resources from this week's episode. Follow the podcast on social media at Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And follow me, Justin Glodish, at OfficialJGlow on TikTok and Twitter. If you haven't done so already, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. We're found on Anchor, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. New episodes are released every Wednesday. You can also now tune into the podcast on Akaville Radio, akaville.org. If interested in supporting this podcast with a monthly donation, go over to anchor.fm slash podcast to do so. And if you ever have any questions about the podcast, suggestions on future guests, please email me at akaedpodcast at gmail.com or leave a voice message on the Anchor website. From the Aka Education Podcast, I'm Justin Glodish. We'll talk soon.